Hi, friends, folks, and fans. This is Bree coming to you live and low quality from my living room. Uh, just to deliver a bit of a preemptive warning that this episode is missing a small portion due to just some errors in uh, the uh, converting of audio files. Unfortunately, about 90% of the lightning round toward the end of the episode is gone. Doesn't have a huge bearing on the episode, of course, but uh, we love the lightning round. We're not discontinuing it. It's quickly become, uh, you know, one of my favorite parts of Peak Show. Uh, but if you're wondering why I suddenly switch into a quiz show voice and ask Kyle a single random question, it's because a lot of the lightning round was lost. If you're curious about any of our other random opinions on Judd Apatow, you can simply hit us up on Twitter and ask us. Anyway, thank you so much for listening. We really enjoyed making this episode. Uh, give us five stars or go to hell. Where we're going, we don't need roads. <laughs> exactly. You want to do that? I don't know who Doc Brown is. What, what are you talking about? Doc Brown is the guy who's Christopher Lloyd. He invented the DeLorean, the time machine. Hey. I have a really good idea. Why don't the two of you get into your time machine, go back in time, and fuck each other? Who needs a time machine? I'm gonna throw you my DeLorean, gun it to 88. I like the way you move. Welcome to Peak Show, a tense, unfunny version of Everybody Loves Raymond. I'm your host, hot grandma who looks like Jack Palance, Bree Rohde, and I set out to explore when the media and creators you love peaked. And who do I have on the line with me here today? Uh, my name is Kyle Martinak, and oh my god, I didn't read the baby books. What's gonna happen? <laughs> Yes, welcome, Kyle. Kyle, you're from Portland. You are a podcast hobbyist, sandwich lobbyist. Yes, I'm quoting from your Twitter bio. Um, And uh, before you uh, introduce yourself, I will say you are an example of a quote-unquote internet friend that I actually met through another podcast. You and I are both uh, pub goers, or in my case, former pub goers of the Muldoon's Pub Facebook group. Uh, I no longer have Facebook, uh, but we're both fans of the We Hate Movies podcast. And I think we just kind of, well, we discovered that we were two of the biggest hockey fans in Muldoon's Pub, but we also just dig each other's vibe. So I'm really glad we could do this together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is this is exactly what the podcast hobbyist portion of that bio for me is, is about is this is a great way to just hang out with somebody that I've only ever traded Twitter barbs with and such. And yeah, hockey (laughs) was an instant connection. I, you know, every hockey meme that you put up, I'm, I'm not quite there with you. I don't have a lot of expertise. I'm actually a kind of newer hockey fan in the last maybe 10 years or so, but I'm learning because of folks like you. As, as uh, we've said, uh, just off mic, you are from an area that is perhaps not as big into hockey as my small town Ontario uh, setting. You are from Portland, Oregon, and can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Oh, what, what can I say? I, uh, I had a web show uh, maybe about 10 years ago for Escapist Magazine. It was called No Right Answer uh, with a couple of my buddies from high school and college. So I've just been kicking around creating content like most people do almost unconsciously anymore. But uh, right now I'm a marketing writer for a local health company in Portland and I'm a dad. That's, that's how most of my, uh, that's how most of my day goes is I'm a dad uh, of two. So 
I'm settling into dorky dad mode. Super. I don't have children, but I feel like there's a dorky dad side of me. So, um, And uh, tell us a little bit about Cinema Autopsy, your book. Yeah. So uh, back uh, right about that same time I was doing that web show, I started writing these long form uh, recaps of famously bad movies or maybe just some bad movie that crossed my path and I, I had a be in my bonnet and I wanted to exercise that demon. So I started writing these things and I, for whatever reason, decided to write it as if it were an autopsy report from a morgue. Only the movie (laughs) is the corpse. And I was trying to establish why does this movie, why is it so hated? What is its cause of death and who do we blame for it? Who's our primary suspect for why this movie sucks. And that was a great just little exercise for me. And then I decided to put a bunch of them together and just self-published on Amazon. So it's a collection of, I think, maybe 24, 25 uh, movie essays. But it's uh, it's very silly. It's uh, also some of them date back to like 2011. So... It's I'm a different writer than I was then, but it was really fun to go back and edit my old stuff and read a joke that I hadn't thought of in so many years. And I I like it, at least it's uh, I I would say the best part about it is the cover, which is a beautiful pulp novel painting of me performing an autopsy, but with uh, film reels coming out of it. So if you can find that on Amazon Cinema Autopsy. And, uh, yeah, that's one of the things I'm most proud of goofing around on the internet about. Oh, certainly. And, uh, we'll try to get, uh, maybe a link into our description for our listeners. And now we're here today, uh, for episode 17 and it feels pretty damn cool, you know, just looking back like, oh, wow, 17 episodes of Peak Show already. We are only one, uh, one episode after this away from our big finale party, which, uh, you know, I'm gonna gonna throw to a couple times, but today we're here to talk about some not so bad movies. I mean, this is a uh, filmmaker who's had his ups and downs, but I don't. I think we can both agree he's never really made any bad movies. Perhaps given money to bad movies as a producer, but as a writer director, never any bad movies. We're talking about uh, kind of two. I guess a man who no better sums up the 2000s and 2010s in comedy cinema, Judd Apatow whom I learned from doing research for this episode that his name is Judd Man Apatow, which he kind of sounds like a sandwich. I love the Judd Man, like, <laughs> uh, which it's also suitable because I think one of the biggest uh, criticisms of his movies is that they are very male in nature. But uh, so we're here talking Judd Apatow and... Uh, you know, I thought how how more suitable I'll get a uh, a white man to discuss Judd Apatow <laughs> with me because I think that's who his movies are made for. Well, you know, we're so hard to come um, by on the internet, us white males. And your opinions. Oh yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> so before we dive deep into the 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 dark and twisted world of Judd Apatow, we have uh, our kind of um, uh, initiation question, which is Kyle, when did you peak? Uh, I'm ashamed, I'm a little ashamed to say that without a doubt, I peaked in high school. Uh, I can, I've got a list. So I start, I starred in nine stage plays in four years in high school. So I was kind of the drama club dude. 
uh, I met my wife in high school and got to kiss her on stage every day for several months. Uh, in the same scene, she got to slap me in the face, though, so turnabout is fair play. <laughs> uh, I was voted okay. the next Tom Cruise uh, in my graduating class, which wasn't as cool of a thing in 2006 as it sounds, because that was when he was at real, like, couch-jumping maximum weirdo. Uh-huh. I if, if I had just graduated a few years later, I would have been voted next Seth Rogen, I'm pretty sure, because that fits my build and my personality certainly and then uh uh, i also won a little teen film festival and i was the anchor man on the school news program and every once in a while i'm out in my hometown somebody will tap me on the shoulder hey weren't you the guy on jag tv i'm like yeah that that closed circuit show in high school 15 years ago i was yeah i think the reason and, and it's funny because I was saying a couple episodes ago that uh, this question always ends up these days, it ends up so much more hopeful because I think maybe it was something about like launching it mid pandemic. And I, I know things are a little different with the US and Canada, but like with Canada and Ontario, we've had a lot, we've had a lot more lockdowns, like, and, and no lockdown to the level of like China or anything, but we've had three long stretches where three separate long stretches where everything was closed like including schools and like everything but grocery stores was closed and i think i launched this around the start of the third one uh which was just when all the americans were starting to get vaccinated and i was very jealous and so i think i imagine this question would be very cynical and everyone would be talking about peaking in high school and stuff and a lot of people are like, oh man, no, I'm peaking right now, or I have yet to hit the peak. And I, who <laughs> I think did peak in high school sometimes, um, I'm just like, yeah, okay, good for you, fuck you. Um, or some people who are like, <laughs> I peaked the day I became a dad, and I'm like, yeah, probably, I can't, I can't get mad at that, I can't disagree with that, but like, fuck you. Um I probably should have said the day I became a dad, but fact of the matter is, the day I became a dad, that's when I became like a background actor in someone else's story. So I kind I'll take of love the high that. school. I kind of love that. No, I like that someone actually admitted, you know, I peaked in high school and I sometimes do think like, I like my life now and I think I have a great life, but I also think I peaked in high school. And I think part of that is because in high school, everything is so insular and so small and so specific that the littlest things feel celebrated. Um, Also, man, in high school, I was thinking like, yeah, I was a big overachiever in high school, but I just had the bandwidth to achieve so much more. And now I'm just like, like I'm on vacation right now and I cleaned my bathroom today and did not much else. And I'm like, Oh, I'm spent. Like, um, you know, <laughs> high schoolers have so much more energy and we are celebrated for the smallest things. So, um, now it was in high school that I was first exposed to Jed Apatow, although sort of like I, I first became familiar with Judd Apatow material. I think when I was in the fifth grade, because I did watch freaks and geeks and then the next year when Undeclared premiered, I I actually, that for some reason was a show that I latched onto. I, I watched it every night, every Sunday night when it came on. It was on Global in Canada. And um, I was super duper into it. But the like, that was shortly before I became like a big film and or big TV and comedy nerd and, you know, knew who worked in every writer's room and stuff. Um, I think... Anchorman came out maybe when I was in the ninth grade and I 
like most teenagers when that movie came out, thought it was just the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Uh, quoted it constantly. I think I saw it in theaters more than once because I was just so into it. And naturally, when other things came oh, the 40-year-old virgin? I'm going to see this. Oh, Knocked Up? I'm going to see this. And um, that was that was kind of my descent into Judd Apatow. Um, I think... I think I started to wane on him initially after Funny People, but um, there was that kind of five-year period when anything his name was on, anything that was from the guys who brought you, not like I was, I was into that. Yeah, absolutely. I Anchorman was the the big Apatow adjacent thing that hit me hard in the beginning. I missed both of the shows when they aired. I mean, when they aired here in the U.S., they were shows that, for all intents and purposes, just didn't exist. There was no <laughs> advertising for them. They just kind of came and went. But uh, when Anchorman landed, that's when I was trying to be a news anchor in school. So my friends and I, of course, you know, absorbed too much of that movie in the wrong way, started doing gags with each other on the teleprompter, trying to one up each other, making jokes about not wearing pants under the table. Never true, but always a funny joke and always caused a little panic in the room. And, and we even started wearing suits every Tuesday. We just called it suit Tuesday and we would try to dress really nice and probably, you know, we, we didn't look as cool as we thought we did. We looked like the guests at a bar mitzvah or something. (laughs) but it it was it was fun because it was we would always have somebody a teacher usually go why are you guys all dressed up because it's suit tuesday was always the only answer so we the movie was a formidable one uh for me and then from there 40 year old virgin the first time i saw it was i really had to earn renting that movie because i was in a video store very late, right as they were closing. And then some guy came and started pounding on the windows and the police were called. Oh my gosh. And we were locked in the video store for an hour and a half. So by the end of it, we needed laughs and boy, we got them at least. So Good. I mean, it's a very long movie though. So it must've been a long night for you. It was. Yeah. <laughs> Um, well, and, and I gotta say that there's something about like the mid 2000s and I, I think Anchorman and also How I Met Your Mother, Suits had a hold on like adolescents and kind of young adult guys. Um, I went to um, a university that was known for its business program. I was not part of the business program, but like half the dudes on my floor were biz kids and they all watched How I Met Your Mother. And so they just like, I'm wearing a suit. <laughs> I'm so cool. I'm so classy. I'm so edgy. I'm wearing a suit. And I'm just standing there in like my, you know, ill-fitting t-shirt from Hot Topic, just like, oh man, I thought I was basic. Um, I'm sure your suits look great though. Um, or maybe you <laughs> no, did look like Barbets Vegas. But um, so we're de- going to take a little deep dive into the man, Judd Man Apatow. Um, now, now with- is that so? Is Man his last name, his real last name, or is that his middle name? According to at least the very reliable source of Wikipedia, his his birth name is Judd Man Apatow. Huh. Which okay. what? Um, uh, now the only thing that I think might be like 
maybe this is confusing of some sort is that maybe uh it's something of him taking his wife leslie mann's last name as like which i mean hey progressive go for it um because i've never i've heard of some wacky middle names i've never heard of man as a as a middle name or or a first name but uh for for this purposes i really enjoyed referring to him as judd man throughout my write-up so um <laughs> Now, would it surprise any of you listeners to know that Judd Apatow was born to at least one parent who uh, worked in the entertainment industry? Um, Why, yes, his mother, Tamara Shad, ran Mainstream Records, which is founded by uh, her father, music industry legend Bob Shad. Um, Now, that said, like, I don't... I, I don't know the music industry particularly well. Like I've never reported on it. I've never like, so I don't know if you owned a label in the 1970s, how powerful you were. Um, and they did live in like Queens most of their lives. So, um, but when he was a teenager, his mother also worked at a comedy club, which is where uh, Judd Mann uh, was first exposed to stand up comedy. And while running his high school uh, radio show, He would allegedly cold call comedians looking for interviews and was occasionally successful, including uh, with Steve Allen, Harold Ramis, Gary Shandling and Jerry Seinfeld. So this is where I'm kind of like maybe having a well-connected mom helped out because like I'm not saying having a mom with connections helped him a ton. But in a pre-internet world, like how else would you have gotten the representation, his representations number? Like, I mean, even when I was reporting in the entertainment industry it took so much effort to fucking get a hold of someone's agent or whatever and that was with the internet and with imdb pro accounts uh so and hey peak show is not a podcast that entirely dismisses someone's uh career saying it was entirely nepotistic i'm just saying uh it is rare i see a director or producer writer or whoever that successful who didn't at least have some sort of uh maybe born in easy mode kind of thing and i would say jet apatow was maybe born in like easy to medium mode i don't know yeah maybe not born uh-huh. on third base but maybe first or second yeah like a little bit of a leg up so um uh he started working as a stand-up comic in high school he attended uscla for screenwriting for like one year um dropped out and by then had become somewhat intertwined in the la comedy and improv scene as a performer and producer he briefly lived with adam sandler so you know he he's his connections started fast uh his big break was writing the 1991 grammy awards which was hosted by gary shandling and he also uh started a uh as a producer for comedy specials so that was uh for the first you know probably half decade of his career he was producing these unscripted stand-up and special kind of things he started getting into scripted in the mid 90s um his first credited uh credited uh writing gig uh officially is on the larry sanders show and he also co-wrote with uh the mighty ducks connected uh heavyweights which uh, he co-wrote with Steve Brill, uh, check out our podcast on the Mighty Ducks, by the way. Uh, and I think like half the Mighty Ducks are in that movie. Mm-hmm. At least a few of them. Oh, yes. Uh, and at least one of them has turned into a fucking Jack show, which good for him. Um, but then uh, he also did a bunch of uncredited rewrites. And I don't know necessarily how reliable these are. As Again, these allegations are all coming from Wikipedia, but um 
He did uh, uncredited rewrites, so they say, on Happy Gilmore, Wedding Singer, Liar Liar, Bruce Almighty, and The Cable Guy. So The Cable Guy is definitely true because that is where he met his wife, the lovely Leslie Mann. Um, Wedding Singer and Happy Gilmore, I'll also say the fact that he lived with Adam Sandler. I believe that. Um, But yeah, I was a bit surprised at some of those names. Like, oh, good for him. And I, I gotta wonder, I don't know how much insight you have into this, but like, how much do people get paid for these like movie rewrites and stuff? And it's just just a thing like, oh my God, this is not going to work. I got to like toss a couple hundred bucks at this guy I know. Uh, I mean, I vaguely remember reading the book by uh, Thomas Lennon and his screenwriting partner whose name escapes me and I I feel bad about it. But their, their whole bit in that book is the idea that they have written over a billion dollars worth of blockbusters but their names aren't on them because they're just mercenary screenwriters who come in for joke punch-ups or character work, or, you know, sometimes there's a writer who specializes in third act problems that need to be cleaned up. Usually if your name isn't on it, that means you get paid more for it. So that Ah. might've been a lucrative start for him. Huh? You know, the one thing, the one that actually really surprises me, and it is because I just out of self-loathing rewatched this movie, is Liar Liar, because it that is a really fast movie and a very, like, um, jabby kind of back and forth, um, like, or quippy movie, I guess, whereas that's not what I know Judd Apatow's writing style to be. It's more kind of extended, almost skit-like scenes and has that heavy improvisational feel. But uh, yeah, I mean... It's uh, obviously kept him afloat and also kept his connections alive. Like I was looking at like, oh, he seemingly just knew everyone in 90s comedy Hollywood. Um, And it was actually um, a pitch, a a pitch not being picked up that led to his real big TV break. Um, He had produced uh, or he had pitched a pilot called Sick in the Head, which actually became the episode of one or the name of one of my favorite undeclared episodes. Um, with Dave Krumholtz uh, was not picked up, but that freed him up to serve as the EP of Freaks and Geeks. Um, so he mainly was the EP, but he wrote and directed several episodes. Uh, shortly after its cancellation, he had a similar role on Undeclared, uh, which is like the spiritual successor to Freaks, although it was set in present day. Uh, so both shows, despite their quick cancellations, did receive critical acclaim, but Undeclared is probably the bigger example of being screwed by the network. You know, you mentioned the networks really did not support those shows. Um, and then with Undeclared, it was even the ridiculously out of order airing it had. Even the DVD, I think, is out of order. I mean, First I was... Ele- blessings of it, I think, yeah. Yeah. I was 11 years old when that show premiered, and I remember being confused because I'm like, why are, why are Jay Baruchel and, uh, and Carl Gallo together right now? Like, why... I thought they are... Why aren't they together? Why is Jason Siegel back? So that was, um, that really sucked. Um, also, if you, um, I don't know if you own the DVD, but the um, the alternate version of the second episode, which had Ted Nugent in it, man, I am glad that was not the one that made it to air. Me too. That's such a bizarre choice. I'm so glad that they yeah. went back and did some reshoots on it. Not just because Ted Nugent is the worst, but I mean, he is the worst. Um, but also because Steve is so unlikable in, in that version, like way worse than, than what ended up airing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, far more humiliation for him 
at such an early part of the show, then, mm-hmm. you know, then, then what we needed is be on his side. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so after a series of unsuccessful pilots, Apatow transitioned into film in 2004. Uh, he was an executive producer on the aforementioned Anchorman, which was wildly successful uh, critically and commercially. Uh, it was there that he connected with Steve Carell, whom, of course, we've spoken about on the show at length, not just for his career on The Office, but also because he, too, played hockey at an elite level. Um, that uh, that movie really changed the career of both Apatow and frankly Steve Carell like it was after the 40 year old version came out that the writers of The Office kind of went back and retinkered with Michael Scott as a character and I think it could be argued that's the whole reason the show went as long as it did because no one liked the first season and all of a sudden they realized oh Steve Carell's actually a very fuzzy sweet guy we gotta make Michael Scott a little bit nicer and so um I mean, Steve Carell is not really known for Beyond Anchorman and 40-Year-Old Virgin being a huge staple of Judd Apatow's films, but I think uh, I think a lot of his uh, TV success he actually kind of owes to, uh, to the 40-Year-Old Virgin. Oh yeah, absolutely. That first season of The Office, he's far closer to the Ricky Gervais, more prickly, you know, uh, overtly racist, just kind of... <laughs> the boss that nobody would ever want. And after retooling that character, it just, it fits so much better in his comedic sensibilities of Mm -hmm. the, you know, the cluelessness, the benign, but foolish. It it also made me realize how much um, like they, one of the subtle things about that is also because the 40 year old virgin, you have like Steve Carell walking around with his shirt off a little bit and being a romantic lead. It made you realize how attractive he is. Like he's not, I mean, he is now, in my opinion, because he's got his, like, cool salt and pepper, you know, cardigan daddy thing going on. But, um, like, he was—he had that everyman kind of handsomeness to him, and they even went back and physically retooled, um, uh, retooled Michael Scott, you know, got the gel out of his hair, you know, made his suits fit a little bit better. And I think Judd Apatow, you know, and we'll get into his, his casting habits, he has a, a habit of, I think, like, casting guys that are kind of normal handsome and i think it's so nice to see just normal handsome dudes like i think seth rogan is my idea of a very normal handsome guy or bill Hader or whatever so i I like that you know he gives some hopes to the sevens of the world (laughs) yeah absolutely i mean steve carell i think there's even a line in the 40 year old virgin of he's 10 years older than us and he looks 10 years younger than us and it was the truth you would not peg him as being 40 in that movie yeah, although now like that meme has become about Paul Rudd, whom I'm pretty sure said that line. Yeah, I'm pretty um, sure it was him, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so over the next decade, Judd Apatow would write and produce a number of films under his Apatow Productions label, which uh, included many writers from the Undeclared Writers Room. I think he kind of scooped them up out of joblessness in that, and he also famously never fired writers. He just found new projects for them to work on, so I guess that's pretty nice and benevolent. Yeah. Uh, productions of yeah. So productions of Apatow uh, productions included Knocked Up, Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Step Brothers, Talladega Nights, um, one of my personal favorites, Superbad, and many more. Um, in between uh, produced features, he also wrote and directed a few more comedies. 
His five scripted theatrical releases so far are The 40-Year-Old Virgin, Knocked Up, Funny People, This Is 40, Trainwreck, and King of Staten Island, which I guess you can't say is a theatrical release because COVID, but whatever, I'm calling it a theatrical release. Um, he has also directed a few documentaries, including May at Last, Portrait of the Avid Brothers, which I was surprised at because I don't think of the Avid Brothers when I think of Judd Apatow, and so I do wonder like how he came onto that project, but um, I do love the Avid Brothers, so... That's interesting. I didn't know that about about the documentaries at all. Yeah, he's done a few. He also did um, did a Gary Shandling documentary that same year. Um, but he had made his return to the TV world in 2012 as a producer of HBO's Girls, which he attached himself to after seeing Lena Dunham's Tiny Furniture. He also wrote, uh, created, and produced the Netflix series Love, uh, which I think lasted for three seasons, and produced HBO's Crashing for three seasons. In 2017, he returned to stand-up as well and started in his own special, uh, which was recorded at Just for Laughs, and it aired on Netflix. Uh, so Judd Apatow has produced a total of 305 episodes of television, including stand-up specials. He has produced or EP'd 22 films and worked as either a writer-producer, writer-director, director-producer, multi-hyphenate on a total of 15 films. So the reason why I wanted to do Judd Apatow for Peak Show, even though, you know, he is a person whose career is not over, so who knows, there could be multiple peaks, but I do think he is someone who has very clearly gone through eras. He's also a good example of a director who's both transitioned from, or a creator who's transitioned from TV to movies and then back to TV. He's seen a lot of failure in his career but also a lot of success and i think successes that no one expected and as much as certain aspects of his films are polarizing i i think he is i felt i don't think anyone could ever call him controversial and he does i don't want to say he makes me like rethink a lot of things about comedy but his approach to comedy gives me a lot to think about and analyze and so that's why i wanted to talk judd yeah, yeah, it makes perfect sense. The, the, he definitely has gone through eras. That's a good point. He, uh, you know, every everybody can point out where where he became the household name, but I don't even know if that's necessarily where he peaked. So it's a good it's a good starting off point for discussion. Hmm. Now, um, I, I didn't have this in my notes, but I wanted to bring it up because I'm so excited about this. When I was first approaching you about doing this, you said that you were one of the few people that thinks Undeclared is better than Freaks and Geeks. And I am right there with you. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of what you like about Undeclared? Yes, absolutely. I actually, I did a rewatch of both shows uh, before coming onto the show because it's been a few years and Undeclared is impossible to find. Uh, on my usual streaming it channels, is. at least. So I even I went and snagged the DVDs from my local library. Thank goodness they're around. And so, yeah, my hot take <laughs> on it is that Fre- I mean, Freaks and Geeks is a tremendous show. I love it. Uh, I think I first saw it once Netflix did start streaming online. Once I made that transition from DVD Netflix to streaming Netflix, that was one of the few shows that was on there. So it was a big, you know, it was a beautiful gem that I discovered, but it was a show that was born around the same time as that 70s show's big peak. And I think that's mm-hmm. probably what drew the, uh, the network to it was that even if, 
maybe the characters need retooling or even recasting. Maybe if the writer's room doesn't work out and we might need to overhaul some things, the show can always rest on the laurels of its nostalgia humor. And it's a very specific mm-hmm. era that it takes place in is 1980, 1981. So, I mean, that's, that's, there is the, you know, the, the easy part of the show, but the real magic of freaks and geeks is in the title concept. The geeks are that depiction of the pain, letting go of, of letting go of childhood. The freaks have the pain of grabbing onto adulthood. And that's kind of what your teen mm-hmm. years are all about. So that was the part of the show that was that was really impressive. The setting, the era setting was, you know, it 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 existed. It wasn't at the forefront the way it was in say that 70s show, but it could have been if the studio or the or the network decided to take control. Uh but the show is very character driven. And then you have Undeclared mm-hmm. which doesn't have that reliable time setting to fall back on. So it has to develop better plots and episode premises for the characters to react to and to move through. And I felt like that Mm -hmm. gave it more legs. Uh, Whole episodes were devoted to the consequences of someone's actions from three weeks previous. Of course, as you mentioned, we're not going to figure that out because it was aired completely out of order. (laughs) So that kind of screwed that up. But, you know, freaks and geeks was a lot more (laughs) loose with the plotting. And it gave characters time to breathe and become people to you, but it also was a lot of wheel spinning. Not a lot of uh, stuff happened for the first maybe six episodes or so. So I, my take is that Undeclared, at very least, you know, I could see an alternate timeline where we got four seasons of Undeclared following them all the way through college Freaks and Geeks, I love it, but I think it is probably better off as a one-season wonder. I think that it is better, you know, sealed in glass that way. Yeah, and I mean, Freaks and Geeks, it did... um, I barely consider it a comedy. Like, it's a very melancholy show. It's... um, And I think... I don't want to say they really put everyone through the ringer, but it it became actually for me a very heavy watch the last time I rewatched it, even though there's nothing particularly tragic about it, but it's just like, it did remind me, despite the fact that I, you know, went to high school in the early two thousands, it did remind me of um, kind of the, like you said, the pain of high school, the pain of trying to grab, having to grasp onto adulthood, let go of childhood. There's it's um, it's a show with so much pathos and it's not, um, it's not something that I would be too eager to spend four years watching. Um, whereas I think, I think Undeclared was kind of a quintessential sitcom, like a true situation comedy. And um, I don't think anyone had ever tried to uh, deprive a lot of humor from the premise of living, you know, in a dormitory at what I, what I love about the uh, setting of um I guess they called it the Eunuch University of North Carolina or North California or something. It's the um, University of North Eastern yeah, was... California, which is kind of hilarious. Because, okay, so that's why it was. Eunuch. Yeah, because Northeastern California is is nothing. It's you know, it's a mountain range. Yeah, <laughs> it's like kind of Sacramento. I don't know. I've only ever been to LA, but um, yeah, I, I obviously it's supposed to be in like kind of this ambiguous place. But what I love about Eunuch is that it's a middle of the road school. And I am someone who went to a middle-of-the-road school, I think. It's not a middle-of-the-road school if you're a business major or a music major or you play football. 
but uh, anyone else, like, it was, I went to my safety school. I got into, like, all these nice-ass schools, but then I went to, you know, Laurier, which I'm like, oh, this place seems friendly, and I just kind of, like, threw a dart at a board and picked it. Uh, I think also because it had the cheapest transit pass, but I, when I, you know, I, I saw and declared, you know, eight years before I went to university, and when I did end up there and in a co-ed dorm, um, in a dorm that was apartment style, so you had like multiple bedrooms and people kind of sharing a pod like in Undeclared. And I'm just like, oh my God, this is exactly how it is. And like, what I love is that it's kind of everyone like putting on airs and trying to project a certain image of what they know they're not. Um, especially the guys, like, you know, you have Steve always trying to pretend to be the cool guy and Lloyd always putting out how sensitive he is and Marshall, you know, kind of hiding from his parents in that sense. And that is a lot of what early university was for me is everyone kind of, now that I look back at it, very transparently trying to reinvent themselves from who they were in high school. Um, so yeah, I, I would have loved to follow Steven through the rest of his adventures. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the interesting thing about me and my uh, university experience, I also went to the most mundane uh, school possible. I went to a little school called Western Oregon University. So it's a state school and it is the cheapest school in the state of Oregon. And then you have to explain to anybody who doesn't know the region, Oregon's that uh, big green <laughs> space in between Seattle and Los Angeles. So it's, it's fun telling people, oh yeah, I went to... <laughs> the school in between the big schools in Oregon. But I also, I didn't have a dorm experience. The reason I chose that school was my older brother was going there. He needed a oh, roommate okay. and I realized way too late that I could not afford the nice film school that I got into. So I, a painful conversation with my dad, almost straight out of an episode of undeclared where he said, okay, you're an adult. You need to have a plan and you need to have that plan by the end of the summer go. And I, so I called my brother and he said, I need a roommate, come here. You can get in, you know, <laughs> get into the school and move directly into my apartment. So I did and missed the dorm experience completely and ended up sitting in my apartment, watching a lot of television, including freaks and geeks and undeclared. And that's when I first watched it. Well, you know, that actually that actually sounds almost like it could be the premise for a Judd Apatow kind of sitcom, except now that I'm thinking about that, that might actually just be the plot of the short-lived uh, animated series Mission Hill. But uh, also, this is making me think, when I was doing my research for this, I realized I Mandela-affected three things onto myself about Judd Apatow. One is that I was convinced Dave Crumholtz had at least one appearance in, uh, um, in Undeclared. For some reason, I was just stuck on no. Like he works with Dave Crumholtz a lot. N not really. Um, and Dave Crumholtz is in there. Crumholtz is in there. Wait, he is an undeclared. Yes. Uh, so Shit. the episode where Jason Siegel returns. No, oh, he's one he's... of the two guys working at the copy shop. It's him and Kyle. Kyle Gas. Gass. I remembered Kyle Gas. Okay, good. Then I don't feel that stupid. But I definitely did, and I I think you hopefully will not blame me for this. I definitely Mandel affected um, the fact that I thought Judd, Judd Apatow has nothing to do with the movies This is the End and Adventureland. Nothing to do with them. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I know that I think where I maybe made the connection is that um, 
Adventureland is directed by Greg Matola, who directed Superbad, and so I guess I just assumed. Um, and uh, yeah, which I, I guess I should have realized there's no one from the Apatow universe in Superbad or in in Adventureland. But uh, and then also this is the end. That one I was like control effing all over the place. Like, are you sure? Are you sure? Uh, that he had yeah, nothing I to do with this is the end. Bet on this is the end. Uh, oh yeah. I the one that I the one that I uh, Mandela affected was uh, I love you man, which was one that I was a big fan of when it came out. And nobody else seemed to be. Now, granted, I do have quite the strong affinity for Rush, which plays a pivotal <laughs> role in that movie. Uh, have I ever told and... you that I have a Rush tattoo? You do? Oh, I didn't I, know that. I have the fly-by-night owl on my ribs. It's the biggest one I have. It's huge. <laughs> oh, that's cool. That's actually, I, I'm still, I still, I want tattoos and I plan tattoos and then I don't get them because instead I have children. Uh, <laughs> but, but one thing that I've always wanted is from, uh, from uh, Clockwork Angels, the line, uh, in a world that feels so small, I can't stop thinking big is a quote that I feel so strongly about. That'd be a great tattoo. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I love you, man. I think I think that just goes to show the fact that we associate so many actors with the Apatow universe that we are just convinced like, oh yeah, he had to have something to do with that. Um, especially because as a producer, and I think we're kind of getting into that, I don't want to say he threw money at a lot of things, but like, for a while, the Apatow Productions name being on something meant that people were going to go see it. And uh, he he didn't lend it out generously because it's still a business, but like the, it was pumping out movies. And his films and family of films, I think, were so successful because, um, and I know this is coming out in a couple of weeks, but just last week, uh, the wonderful We Hate Movies did an episode about The Zookeeper. And so there was a lot of talk about the, um, you know, relatively low rent, happy Madison uh, production family of films. And I really do think Judd Apatow's movies kind of became happy Madison for grownups, like more accurately, happy Madison movies with actual developed characters, because for all my misgivings about his flaws as a writer, director, producer, Judd Apatow is extremely good at writing characters and tailoring lines that sound great coming out of everyone and also allowing people to improvise and stuff a lot, which... I think actually is one of the good things that can come from writing the same actors a lot and working with the same actors a lot. Cause like writing for someone like Martin Starr, and I think he is the one person from the Apatow universe who is in Adventureland, uh, writing for Martin Starr is not the same as writing for Jay Baruchel or Seth Rogen. Yeah, absolutely not. Every one of them has a different comedic sensibility, which is why when you put a bunch of them in a room together, it's, probably magic and chaos at the same time while shooting it. But that, that is one of the things that I, I didn't know so much about uh, Judd's background in standup. That kind of makes sense that he would, it would lend so well to him encouraging improvisation from everybody because he would trust them as performers a little bit better and be a little more loose with, with uh, the scripting. So that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that is one of the two things that, I think is why people latched on to to uh, his method of comedy. You know, the, the late 90s, early aughts, we saw a return of the raunchy comedy from the 80s that kind of went out of style for a little while. 
And his movies definitely have that, but it's always with this genuine sweetness attached to it. And that's always what people bring up when they're doing it, when they're writing a good review of one of his movies is how sweet and how genuinely charismatic these guys are, even when they're not good guys, but they're, they're always human. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think Uh separates, you know, 40 year old virgin from American pie is you like Steve Carell's character and you want him to succeed. And he's not just looking to lose his virginity. He's also looking for growth. And that's always kind of the theme of the movies is that masculine need for emotional growth, which people appreciate, I think. Yeah. And there really is in most of his films, truly no antagonist. It is a a real like kind of man versus himself conflict most of the time, uh, even the skeevier characters, like you said, in like 40 year old virgin, like, okay, Romani Malco's character, he goes through something and he understands that maybe it's wrong to treat women like objects so much. Who'd have thought? Um, and really like the, the biggest antagonist probably in knocked up is Seth Rogen himself against him because he just self-sabotages because he has no idea what ambition and success looks like. So, um, you know, we're talking about the good and the many gems Apatow Productions had early on. Um, Because I really do think even his non-written directed things, Forgetting Sarah Marshall and Superbad are, to me, some of the best comedies of the 2000s. And I know Superbad is morally iffy. And I will say that I prefer the interpretation of Jonah Hill is not supposed to be correct. You're supposed to side more with Michael Sarah's character. I I think it's fair to say that maybe... um, some young men didn't get the right message, but uh, when when do they ever? Um, but um, I think it really comes down to the writers of those movies. Um, and Bridesmaids was a real game changer for women in comedy. Um, I have seen the criticism with Bridesmaids as well as with Trainwreck, which I, I thought was a fantastic movie. And it is a really good thing that Trainwreck was the first thing he did after This Is 40, which neither of us liked, I think, no. um, is that... <laughs> Judd Apatow, it's, I guess, a legitimate complaint. Judd Apatow only knows how to write women being funny when women are gross and women are messes. And I guess I could agree with that, but I also don't necessarily have a problem with that because, like, I think the idea is, like, women, there are many ways women can be funny. Women can be funny by being too particular. Women can be funny. But the the thing is, I have seen that type of humor before. I've seen, you know humor from women being too particular in, say, Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada. I have never seen um, uh, Kristen Wiig um, trying to knock over a fountain, a chocolate fountain at a lavish party because she is having a complete adult tantrum and punching a hole in a cookie, you know? (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah, exactly. But then I... So I think like get him to the Greek year one. Um, that was when for me and I was you know in my early mid twenties I started to feel like oh my god this guy will put his money behind anything as long as it goes to the right as long as it has the right white stoner dudes in it. Um, even Anchorman two I actually thought was pretty blah. Um, but I think that's because I am very apprehensive about sequels in general. Um, I don't think you could capture the magic of the original if you tried because the thing about Anchorman is it was such an unexpectedly amazing movie like will ferrell had had some stinkers and you know i think there were still doubts of if he could be a movie star without necessarily always rehashing um snl characters 
And as, like Anchorman, I don't think anyone expected it to be as big as it was. And then Anchorman 2, the expectations are this, just so high. Um, but there were in that in that kind of period, which I'll call his dark period, you had a lot of movies that didn't make back their budgets and they didn't have that kind of magic with the critics. Um, and then, yeah, this is 40. As far as his writing directing efforts go, I think it left a really bad taste in people's mouths. It was the worst reviewed film. Like, I just want to know who watched Knocked Up and said out of all of it, you know who I'd really like to see a movie focus on? The miserable Paul Rudd, Leslie Mann couple. I really think they need their own movie. Um, yeah. and, and I think it also started to shift the public perception of Judd Apatow because everyone already knew, oh, he always casts the same people. Oh, he often casts his wife. But this was just the ultimate, like, you just wrote a, a movie to give your wife a starring role. And like, this is really just you kind of making the same jokes over and over. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. This is 40 was that moment where everybody could see he's definitely going through the motions. And I would call the idea of let's take the Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann couple and make the movie about them. I'd call it a miscalculation because they are definitely they steal knocked up for a good portion of its runtime. But I think it's because this is 40 is missing the juxtaposition between them and the Heigl and uh, Rogan characters, not really knowing how to navigate their relationship together without that juxtaposition. It's just a little too melancholy and miserable. And another, another aspect of it is, and I'll quote, I'll, I'll uh, give the credit for this to Kevin Smith, who admits in his own work, he reached a point where he stopped having things to say as a young man trying to figure out who he is and he figured out who he was. And that's when his work suddenly became less, you know, a statement and more, you know, an excuse to goof off with his friends. And that's always been something that Apatow gleaned from Kevin Smith, I think is the idea of I'm going to cast the same people over and over again because I have so much fun with it. Even if the movie doesn't work, it's still a terrific experience for everybody. And sometimes that shines through, even if the movie doesn't hold together. I think Anchorman is kind of the epitome of that, where as a movie, it doesn't hold together very well, but every scene just has such energy that you don't care. You know, it's, I mean, you could say the same thing about a lot of beloved comedies. Ghostbusters is one of them. It's not a movie with terrific structure, but it's just that that happy-go-lucky energy to it that brings people in and makes them a part of the gang. Yeah, it does feel like kind of like you're um, they're sharing a little joke and you just kind of get to be in on it and watch a bunch of guys, like you said, kind of goofing off and having fun. Like, And, and I think Kevin Smith is a great comparison. And for the longest time when I was planning out this season... It was, do I want to do Judd Apatow or do I want to do Kevin Smith? I, I just felt like for some reason I couldn't do both. You know, maybe I will revisit Kevin Smith in the future. Um, Ooh, I might have but, to claim that one um, if you do, because I'm a big fan. Fuck yeah. Um, but it's kind of like Clerks versus Clerks 2. These are two movies that could not be any more different. And I actually think Clerks 2 is a fun movie, um, but there's nothing to say in Clerks 2. Mm -hmm. Clerks 2 is a fun movie that has a dance sequence in the middle of it because we couldn't think of anything else to do, you know? Mm -hmm, exactly. I do love that dance sequence yeah. though, because it's just so much fun and it's so candy colored <laughs> and pretty. And also Rosario Dawson. speaking as a choreographer, 
Speaking as a choreographer, the choreography is really good. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can really pick out yeah. who the choreographer is because he's right up front and center. I mean, I don't know anything <laughs> about dancing, but I could tell that's the guy who who choreographed this entire number. But it, I, yeah, it's uh, the thing about Kevin Smith compared to Judd Apatow. It's really weird because Judd Apatow was a contemporary of Kevin Smith. And then Kevin Smith reached a point where he was making uh, Zach and Mary make a porno. And that was him kind of trying to design a movie that was a Judd Apatow movie. And he wanted. Oh, it, that's another like Yul Mandela effect, that one. And think like that was that was Judd Apatow, right? Because like there are so many Judd Apatow staples in that movie. Yeah, exactly. And so Kevin Smith, I think, was under the impression if I bring in Seth and I make this kind of the hangout movie the way Judd does, maybe I'll get maybe not knocked up or super bad numbers, but certainly forgetting Sarah Marshall numbers. And that was what he was striving for. And he didn't get it. I actually wrote an entire piece about how making the release date of Zack and Mary make a porno October 31st. I understand what counter-programming is, but that was ridiculous and stupid and only one of the more minor sins of Harvey Weinstein. But that's <laughs> another discussion. <laughs> just, just you know, it's not quite top 10. Not exactly. Um, no. But, you know... It- <laughs> In your notes, you made um, you made another interesting comparison, which was um, Apatow and Spielberg. And I really love this explanation. So can you tell me a little bit about uh, where you see those parallels? Yeah, yeah. I mean, talking about the sequels like Anchorman 2 and uh, Get Him to the Greek, which is such a weird, you know, concept to spin that character off into a, a separate movie. I just feel like Judd Apatow will exec produce uh, projects like that. The same way Spielberg is a lot less discerning about the stuff he'll slap his name and his money on than the stuff he actually puts his own sweat into. Spielberg produced every Transformers movie, for crying out loud. He's happy to lend his (laughs) bona fides to something like that because he knows he has a return on his investment. And I'm sure Judd Apatow feels that way about Anchorman, too. Sure, I'll I'll throw my name and my my money behind that because I know I'll get something back. And then, you know, it's a one for them, one for me scenario where he can take that kind of paycheck and pump it into something like King of Staten Island, which is never going to get the traditional funding that he would get from a studio because it's not terribly commercial. Mm-hmm. Um, and so as we're talking about kind of the... Um, the, the bigger sins and sins isn't even like the right word to use to describe it. You know, for, we're, we're talking about Harvey. We bring up Harvey Weinstein. I'm so sorry. Uh, someone I did, having a way. few bad movies or, Oh, Oh no, that's all right. I mean, I am shocked that he never came up in my episode on scream considering dimension films produced, you know, that entire series. But uh, like, you know, that's why I feel like I do have to be a little easier on Judd Apatow, because as far as we know, as far as we know, and this is coming out a week and a half from now, so if I'm wrong, you know, may God strike me down. But as far as we know, Judd Apatow's not a monster. So um, now I'm so I'm not a huge fan of Katherine Heigl, um, but she is part of one of my favorite movies, which is Bride of Chucky. Um, another, I believe, great We Hate Movies episode. Um, but like, I wasn't a fan of Grey's Anatomy. I've, I've never watched like a episodic medical trauma in my life. Um, 
But I do feel like it's always sad when an actress's career kind of gets soured because they dare to criticize someone powerful. Um, and she did kind of get this reputation as difficult um, after she publicly said in Knocked Up. And I, I had gotten the impression that she said this about all of Judd Apatow's movies, but she really just said this about Knocked Up, that the female characters are presented as shrewish. Um, and even though Judd Apatow and Seth Rogen said they enjoyed working with her, she became known as difficult after that. And that was like a weird stain on her. And I know that, um, you know, like you said, she didn't, she hadn't spent 10 years goofing off with this cast. Like this was the biggest cast of just like Apatow and his homies. You know, you've got like pretty much everyone in it was either in Freaks, Freaks or Undeclared. And then you have Catherine Heigl, who'd formerly been in a lot of like teen movies and stuff and was starting to transition into more adult roles but you know speaking as a woman and a stoner or at the time of that movie's release i was a huge stoner she was very correct that the women in that movie were portrayed as a bit shrewdish i i loved the movies but like the dudes get to be these lovable goofballs and yes he did judd apatow did point out that the guys aren't meant to be role models or anything it's making fun of how immature they are but when you pair them against women who are portrayed as assholes, then yeah, people do come out saying, geez, Katherine Heigl's character sure was a bitch. Or like Leslie Mann's character was irredeemably mean and and during that movie. And yet I, I look back and I feel so sorry for her because now that, you know, I wasn't married when I saw that movie. Now I think like, oh my God, if my husband were running off to play a fantasy baseball and literally not telling me that he was doing this harmless thing because he wanted to be away from me, I'd be so upset. So, like, I do think she had a bit of a point. Like, Knocked Up's still a great movie, but it kind of sucks to see how much that stained her career. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Katherine Heigl caught a, a bad rap from from that whole thing. I think it was interpreted as, well, she's not, she's not, you know, playing the game. She's not she can't keep up with the guys improving, you know, it's all, it's all her problem was the way it was portrayed in the media. And it, nobody seemed to touch on the fact that she had a total point about the characters. I, I think what saves the Leslie Mann character quite a bit is at the end of the fantasy baseball blow up her saying, just because you don't yell, you don't think you're being mean, but this is mean. And she's yes! absolutely right. Yes! It is. It's it's more mean because it's it, it's says so much about their relationship that he won't even deign to have the conversation of I need a little space. He just decides to scamper off whenever he feels like it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, you're you're also you pointed out even the forty year old virgin like. Um, the, all the women are either psychos or like really reserved. I mean, Catherine Keener's character, it's it's lovely, the little relationship that she has with, with Steve Carell, but she doesn't actually have any traits. There's there's nothing really about her. Yeah. Like, uh, the, the, the interesting she, thing She's about... not funny. The situation... Oh, no. sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying, like, she's not funny. Like, the situations with her are funny, but she she's not funny. She's not anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Katherine Keener's a terrific actress. And in that movie, I think the majority of what's likable about her character is projected onto her from from the guys discussing her more than anything. And the one genuine moment we get with her where he's not there and she's not putting her best foot forward because she's dating a new guy, 
is when she's on the phone screaming at him because she thinks he's a telemarketer. And that's such a weird (laughs) scene. It's funny because she plays it very funny and very exaggerated, but it's also a bizarre moment of, oh, is she maybe a little crazy too? Is it possible that all (laughs) women are crazy? And that kind of sucks. And it does. And then, uh, you know, I mean, every every other woman in the movie seems to be some level of insanity. The the one holdout being Mindy Kaling, who we're expecting to be a crazy ex-girlfriend of Paul Rudd. And the, the perfect punchline is that she's absolutely reasonable about everything and just doesn't yes. want to date him anymore and doesn't want to have anything to do with him. That's still possibly my favorite punchline from that movie. His stalking is just adorable and kind of funny. And actually, I would also add that, although she never gets a name, um, typical when writing women, uh, Romani Malko's girlfriend. Or no, wait, she does have a name. I think it's Jill is her name. Um, The way she lays into Steve Carell, even though she looks crazy because he didn't actually write, uh, write those things on the speed dating card, she doesn't know that the way she's freaking out at him is absolutely uh-huh. deserved. You know, like the, like you're never going to meet anyone talking this way about women. You sick son of a bitch. Like it's, uh, <laughs> it's, it's a great scene also because of the way, uh, Carell and Malco play off each other, but she's actually kind of justified in being as crazy as she is in that yeah, scene. Yeah. I mean, I feel it's, it's righteous indignation because some of the things written on that mm-hmm. card, you know, it's 2004 and boy, I'm so glad that, stuff like ho has completely disappeared from the lexicon especially for white men because holy crap but such a weird weird energy that that uh that men had at the time with words like that i don't know i'm not i'm not articulating Mm -hmm. myself very well here but the fact that a white man would write that on a speed dating card is is insane (laughs) and as a black woman she's more outraged at him you know i i think that just exacerbates it the idea that those phrases all definitely came from romney malco's character you know but i mean that said i know it's played for laughs but um the phrase hurting for a squirting kind of lives rent free in my <laughs> That's head fair. um it's so gross it's so gross but i i like gross stuff um in looking because um also you are correct that I don't see those um, terrible things being written about women or for the women in Freaks or Undeclared, um, you know, even though, and actually one thing I really liked about Undeclared is particularly um, Lizzie and um, uh, Rachel, even though they're they're both portrayed as sexual beings, but also they are not just sexual, like... Um, you know, Rachel is a party girl, but she also is probably like the moral center of everyone. She's kind of like the Phoebe. A little of bit, that show. yeah. Uh, and then you've got, yeah. I, I really like in the second, or it's not the second episode, it's the episode where Martin Starr is, and, you know, Steve's kind of having to admit, yeah, I was a geek in high school. And Lizzie just being totally casual, I was a slut. Like, and it's nothing. And that was one of the only times I've ever seen being a slut talked about in a non-moralized way, which is great because I'm not saying I was a slut in college, but I was kind of a slut in college. Um, And, um, but then I looked and I Googled, who are the writers of these shows? And the writer's room uh, for Freaks had one woman, 
uh, she was a woman of color. So there's that's there's that. But one woman out of, you know, I think half a dozen uh, and half a dozen men. And then uh, there there isn't a kind of formal writer's room listing uh, for Undeclared. But you have two women wrote wrote one episode each. I don't know if it was a co-writing or an entire credit, but uh, yeah, not uh, not great representation in those writers' rooms. No, yeah, which makes it all the more surprising that those shows were just a little bit more sex positive with the female characters than some of the movies that come later. And yeah, I really enjoy the fact that Lizzie, I, the Adam Sandler episode of Undeclared, both girls sleep with someone and clearly kind of regret it, but are never given a diatribe about it. It's it's always just, it's presented the same way as if one of the guys slept with somebody and then later regretted it as just kind of, uh, yeah. well, I oop, and then that was it. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, what I like about Freaks and Geeks is that Lindsay is, um, she is definitely smarter than most of her the male friends in her group i mean they know a lot a little bit more about life than her in some cases but she also finds herself like oh like james franco's character is really emotionally immature or whatever and like yeah i i do find something about it like they struck gold also with freaks it does make me think i wish jed apatow wrote young people more that he really doesn't write young people a lot um because if i recall he didn't write he didn't write on super bad. He maybe did rewrites or something, but he was mostly just a producer on that. Um, but yeah, I think like there, there was a little bit of magic in that show that I think he seemed to not bother applying to his movies. Um, speaking of movies that maybe lacked a bit of magic, I'm excited to get to this because I have found myself asking as I was making these notes, was funny people really that bad? <laughs> now, I recall I saw funny people the summer I turned 20. I recall totally hating it. It was the kind of movie that I walked out of mad at. Um, but looking back, I actually do think it was there was some funny parts and good performances. Um, I knew that it was more of a drama going into it. Um, so it wasn't that that disappointed me. Um, and I think like Adam Sandler had a great performance and he is a good performer. He's probably the most frustrating performer in the world because like it's, you just have to break him out of his pee pee poo poo shit. And he like has no desire to maybe once every 10 years, he'll do something different. Um, but the movie is definitely too long. Um, I think it's also just too much like Judd Apatow's universe. Like I have a, I have a more extended note that like his stuff is so L.A., it's just L.A. and comedy guys, and it's just so much about, like, I think he was drawing upon his experiences as a stand-up comedian, but it is so, like, it's a movie that has this really cool, very sad plot, and then just occasionally takes a detour to pontificate about the comedy scene and what it's like dating in the comedy scene, and that, I think, is a little too clunky. Um, also, all his writer director movies are way too long even the good ones mm -hmm. like a comedy has to be amazing to be more than two hours to justify 125 minute runtime because his comedies are all very good but they are still way too long like you maybe you could say the 40 year old virgin that it makes the most of its runtime but he leaves in those extended improvised bits because they are magical he just he does too many he does too many little detours and i think 
that can affect the pacing of a movie and that's what really hurt funny people in my opinion yeah absolutely it's uh it is way too long and and it's not just a length issue you bring up a really good point everybody you know wanted to burn that movie in effigy because it was so long but it's really more a pacing issue and it's really for me that back 30 Mm -hmm. minutes have such a sinking uncomfortable vibe to them that you come out of it feeling just a little dirtier than you should and and i think a a big point you bring up a good point that it's uh a lot about his experience in the comedy scene I have to assume another portion of it is uncredited rewrites on Adam Sandler movies being how his career began in (laughs) earnest. That's kind of where the Seth Rogen character in that movie is at is this guy is the face and I'm the writer and I don't feel I'm it's an equitable relationship between the two of us. That's probably all in good fun because him and Sandler live together and we're friends and everything, but I don't know. It's uh, I think maybe because it came so late in his career after the biggest summer of his life with, you know, I mean, granted, he didn't he didn't direct super bad, but knocked up and super bad were a one two punch that made his name a household name. And then the Mm -hmm. next thing he does is funny people. And the way I see it is funny people is that watermark of where his uh, main source of turmoil shifted from, man, I got to grow up and make my bed and find a little humanity, find a little human connection, be a person with a soul. And it shifted from that to, okay, I found my success, but I'm <laughs> still not fulfilled. And I, I, no one told me that I wasn't going to ever finish on this project that I've made out of myself. And that's equally true and valid and and sometimes you know very uh uh very uh, what's the word i'm looking for uh relatable uh you know theme to have but it's less funny for sure and yeah absolutely going in i knew that it was less of a comedy than most people seem to but even going in knowing that you expect it to be a little lighter than it is and also, it just being less relatable for some of mm-hmm. us still looking for success, I, it was a hard shift. I related very easily to Knocked Up and Superbad. I had just gotten out of high school. I was in college, kind of living an aimless life the same way Rogan's character and all of his buddies are. And then the next movie, it's, well, what happens after you've found personal success and now you're just looking for fulfillment? I wasn't there yet, so it was a disconnect for me. Mm-hmm. I, I think sometimes Judd Apatow's skills as a writer uh, don't always necessarily um, jive with his skills as a director because he is very skilled at both. Like, I think as a writer, he's really good at, um, you know, one liners and writing for, you know, guys that he's worked with a long time and writing for voice. Um, and I think as a director, he is really good at just getting those really genuine moments out of his out of his actors um, and building like i feel like when i watch say knocked up i feel like i can kind of know like what the history between all these characters is um he really gets that out of people i think he also is a terrible at pacing and i think he's a bit terrible at tonality because 
not terrible. He he comes up short in terms of creating the right tone because, like, again, we know Adam Sandler is good, and we knew Adam Sandler was a good actor before Funny People because uh, um, Punch Drunk Love uh, showed how how damn good he was. And then you know, we're st- I'm still. I watched Uncut Gems the day that everything got shut down in Canada. That was a bad. That was a bad idea. That may be so tense, but um, yeah, yeah. Uncut but, Gems um, landing on Netflix right as the world felt like it was ending was bad woof. timing. But that is when I first watched it, yeah. and like I didn't need more heart palpitations. I mean. <laughs> But yeah, I've so seen like my always... cardiogram, and that's not a movie I recommend for a guy in my state. Yeah, so like we've always known he's good, and I do think his performance in that movie is good. And it's like this is a really good performance on a stage that just doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel like, and it feels like the packaging of the movie just was there was something incomplete about it, something rough about it that didn't let those performances shine as much as it could. Um, which again kind of brings me to his where I think Apatow is at his worst is his very very insularness and I will say that there are positives to this because I think you know the most cliche writing advice you can get is write what you know and he does write what he knows and that is LA and show business and pretty much all of his films up until King of Staten Island are set in L.A. I checked and 40-Year-Old Virgin is indeed set in L.A. And mm-hmm. aside from 40-Year-Old Virgin, they're all show business adjacent in some way. Um, you know, it, even in Knocked Out, because I was like, is that? But yeah, because Katie Heigl's character is working as, a, as an entertainment correspondent. And um, also you could argue that trying to start a site about boobs is indeed a, uh, is indeed a part of show business. It's showing something for business. <laughs> but yeah, so they get very filled with cameos that sometimes work and maybe sometimes don't. I mean, I was as delighted as I'm sure you were to see James Van Riemsdyk and other Philadelphia Flyers in This Is 40. But mm. uh, that was a cameo that didn't work to me. Um, it feels a little just like Judd Apatow's getting famous people to make cameos because he can. Like, um, And I'd say This Is 40 was a good example of it because these guys are, you know, in a club hitting on Leslie Mann. That could be literally anyone doing that. And yet it's like, let's make it hockey players just because. And hockey players from Philadelphia, like, that's it was weird. Um so because it gets a little navel-gazing with the Hollywood stuff and he uses the same people over and over, that did, I think, create an optics problem for Judd Apatow's movie, uh, his movies because it's like, oh, this is a project he made just because he can. And I think a lot about what kind of career Leslie Mann could have had. And to be clear, she has she's not had non-Apatow projects. She's had a lot, but like... She had a lot of those great supporting parts in the 90s, and now it's like a lot of voice acting. And the closest thing she's had to a lead since 17 again, which was 12 years ago, uh, was the romantic interest in that god-awful Marwin movie. Um, People were really, yeah, people were really down on Leslie Mann for so long and saying things like, oh, she can only do her husband's movies, which I, I think is untrue. But he... You know, it did create an optics problem, and he always cast her as the most unlikable roles. Like, I, I think sometimes 
you know, I don't want to say Amy Adams in the sense, like, I know she's not as good an actress as Amy Adams, but I sometimes think she could have maybe had a few of those types of roles if she didn't have the baggage of being part of the Judd Apatow universe for so long. Yeah, I mean, for certain, uh, full agreement on everything Leslie Mann related, I would say a good uh, a good parallel might be some of the roles that Amy Poehler has had over the years. Leslie Mann could have pulled mm. off fantastically and possibly with a little less personal brand mustard on it. Uh, I, she's she's even before uh, being a staple of Judd Mann's movies, she was still given those thankless, you know, nasty woman roles in Big Daddy. Uh, that was the first time I saw her. And I was mm-hmm. a big defender of her character because just just like uh, just like her character in Knocked Up, sure she might be abrasive, but that doesn't make anything she's saying any less completely true about Adam Sandler's character. And not for nothing, her her sequence in Forty Year Old Virgin, she steals the whole movie in about five minutes. Mm-hmm. And it's such a showcase of her energy that we haven't seen since, unfortunately. I'll I mean, say maybe... she had more chemistry with Steve Carell in that scene than she did in the Marwin movie. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I I blacked out a lot of Marwin because it was a real what am I watching scenario. But yeah, I mean, she she is a perfectly viable leading lady I'm trying to think. I saw her recently in something that I rewatched and I didn't expect to see her. And now it escapes me. Was it George of the Jungle? Yes, it was. Because I... (laughs) Thank you so much, Bree. I I spaced it, but I recently watched what I call the Nice Guy Brendan Fraser trilogy, which was Encino Man, George of the Jungle, and then uh, Blast from the Past. So just three movies where (laughs) Brendan Fraser is the nicest guy ever. And she is terrific in George of the Jungle. She gets to, she gets to have fun with Fraser, you know, instead of being the wet blanket. She actually has a very like adorable naivety or like she did have that quality Borso when she was young. But I even find now like in her 40s or maybe even 50s, I don't know how old she is, but something about her face has this wonderfully naive quality. I also thought she was very like sparkly in that sense in um, 17 again. Like she actually does have this really nice little sensitivity to her. But yeah, like I... I don't want to act like being in Judd Apatow movies ruined her career or anything. She has a fine career. And also, she's a woman over 40, meaning it's just plain harder to get work these days because Hollywood sucks. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, but yeah, like, he definitely... It, I think sometimes cameos are fun and stuff, but the whole, like, you know, let's usher in the celebrity cameos, I, I think... It's not even that it felt like too much, but because there was a period when it felt like every movie did that, it got very tiring yeah it is something that's kind of a holdover from those happy madison productions you know it got to be a certain point i think little nicky is the the apex of that of just like who can i put in this movie just for fun rodney dangerfield (laughs) sure he'll he'll show up for a day Uh, how about brett Favre? why not you know i'll just bring in anybody (laughs) anytime it's an athlete it's always a mistake because comedic timing is not usually their forte I'm sure there are a few hockey yeah. players that you know of that are, that have it, but it's not typical. <laughs> I don't think there's such thing as a funny hockey player, <laughs> but um, I don't know. 
uh, Jason Spitz, if you ever want to get into acting, you know, I support you. But um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, oh, shit. I totally had something for this. Uh, probably about. Oh, no, it was about the uncameo, which is to say someone that uh, and this is an Apatow produced movie. Someone that became much more famous after this cameo. So it was not a celebrity cameo, but it's the ultimate and retroactive recognition, which is that um, Jonah Hill gets hit by a car driven by Detective Charles Bo- Charles Boyle. Really? Um, I c- completely forgot that Joe Latruglio plays is not only in that movie, but plays the biggest fucking oh. sketchy little scumbag in that movie. Oh, I totally forget that that's Joe Latruglio. Yeah, because I always remember that Kevin Corrigan is in that movie. He has the role as the guy whose party it is that he crashes. But I fucking forgot that Joe Latrulio is is a pretty big part of that movie and um, one of the most uncomfortable things. Like that that's an interesting movie too because I think that has that very skit like feel. Like it was written by uh, Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg and. It has that, like, there is a lot of meandering into different little side plots, different settings, but I, um, but it works a little bit better because the whole thing is premised around a quest with an endpoint, and you know where their endpoint is. So I think that's a good example of things that meander and maybe go into little, almost episodic parts, um, which, again, I, I know I'm giving a lot of credit to the writers when the writer is not Judd Apatow, but they're, I'm just saying that it is possible to do a comedy that meanders. Yeah, absolutely. And that way, that way you can manage a tone shift every once in a while without it being, you know, horribly jarring. The the party mm-hmm. sequence in Superbad, that that party sequence in the middle, uh, such weird energy. And a lot of it's coming in that back room <laughs> with David Crumholtz leading this pack of guys that you're not sure if they're going to kill uh, Michael Sarah, or if they're going to become his best friends by the end of it. <laughs> and I, I have to say, uh, back to the undeclared connection, Carla Gallo, who like, you can always count on her to make a really good uh, little cameo in a Judd Apatow thing. I love her character so much because like I come from a really scummy town like Timmins, Ontario is kind of like where I spent some of my formative high school years. And it was the the cokiest, methiest town because lots of organized crime, so lots of drugs flowing in and out. And like there were times when as a high schooler, I ended up at those kinds of parties and the way she goes, Mark, hide your gun. The cops are coming. Like that is I've been to those parties. I've seen that girl a million times. And I'm like, this is a very specific thing. And I love it. Yeah, that's a terrific line reading from her. It's (laughs) it's got it's got exactly the right amount of truth to it, because, yeah, I've, I've met people like that and I've mistakenly found myself at parties like that and it's (laughs) the nonchalance with which people will say things like that to total strangers is the worst part of it you'll okay if if i'm at a party of my best friends and somebody's mentioning that they just have a gun at the party that's a conversation we have to have but that's between you and me as friends (laughs) When there are strangers and you're just popping off saying things like that, or, hey, stay in this room, they're going to kill that guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, that's a great scene. It. I And I love the Guess Who being uh, Canadian with dad energy. So that's uh, Michael Sarah singing These Eyes is <laughs> like, that is Michael Sarah at his best, man. It is. That's, um, that's exactly what he was for at the time. What is your favorite one-liner from a Judd Apatow movie? 
Oh wow! One that one that I keep throwing back and forth with my brother even to this day is Steely Dan gargles my balls. <laughs> which wait, which one was that from? That's in Knocked Up because uh, Paul Rudd's character is in the music business right. and he's he's doing that that you know dad rock thing of telling you how great Steely Dan is, and <laughs> Seth Rogen just tosses off. Well, yeah, but, you know, Steely Dan gargles my balls. They're really not good. <laughs> and it's I very quick Steely and Dan. it's not acknowledged. I hate Steely Dan. So, um, and actually, you're right that he does have a lot of those types of lines of like the very quick, like it's just in the middle of a dialogue and there's no dwelling on it. Like, I don't know if there's a name for that, but um, I he's really good at those kinds of one liners in conversations. Mine is from Jane Lynch's character in 40-Year-Old Virgin, um, because I think it's a really sexy thing to say. And I love like slapping it on a meme or a hockey joke. Or I'm very discreet, but I'll haunt your dreams. <laughs> Jane Lynch, she she is tremendous in that movie. She is. I I don't think I had ever seen her in anything before that, so instantly from then on she was the boss from 40 year old virgin to me until i you know remembered her name mm-hmm. and yeah she's, she's so aggressive in that movie in a jane lynch way yeah um uh so i'm really excited because we have come to the conclusion of peak determining peak judd apatow and you know, I've, I always make sure to say in, in recent episodes, like, peak can mean different things for different people. Like, for some people, it is w- just what was their best. For some, it's like, no, when was this the most, like, themselves? When was it the last good one? When was it, like, what m- resonated most emotionally with me? So, uh, with all that in mind, Kyle, what to you is peak Judd Apatow? Um, I guess I would say... I mean, I, I guess I'm going to say uh, super bad and knocked up in that one summer. Because as I've said, that's when the world kind of knew his name and attaching his name onto a movie or at very least insinuating his name onto a movie like Adventureland was a way to sell a movie all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. And, you know, from the guys who brought you this is such a stupid marketing thing you know that everybody sees right through from the from the producers of this thing that you vaguely remember from the team that brought you this means nothing but if you say you know a judd apatow movie people know what that means at that point Mm -hmm. yeah i think i i think you're right and i am almost in the same place as you i would actually say 2007 to 2008 which included not only Superbad, but also Forgetting Sarah Marshall. And that mm. was, those were two movies that t- to me proved that like he can, as a producer, like, oh, he's really smart about his projects. And Forgetting Sarah Marshall also showed that he could change it up a little. It's like, okay, you know, you're getting some guys from the Judd Apatow catalog of performers with, you know, Jason Siegel and Bill Hader and Jonah Hill. But we're also putting in like legitimate superstars like Mila Kunis, uh, Kristen Bell, uh, uh, Russell Brand. And um, I think he was teetering on this edge of like he was a guy who could do no wrong. And when you think about it, like less than 10 years earlier, 
his shows were getting canceled after one season and getting getting the shaft and stuff. And I do think it's not necessarily that he took a nosedive right after because like, you know, when I think of a peak, I also think of it's very possible to take a nosedive right after. And it's not that he took a nosedive right after forgetting Sarah Marshall, but I think with um, with funny people coming out the next year and even Pineapple Express, which I liked, I like it a lot less now that I'm, you know, not going through uh, an ounce of weed, uh, you know, every couple weeks. Um, I think right after forgetting Sarah Marshall was when he showed that Judd Apatow could in fact do wrong and did occasionally, you know, maybe make movies that were for a very specific person, namely himself. Um, and yeah, I think it's, there were still many, many good things after that, but I just think I would kill to have been Judd Apatow in 2008, 2009. Yeah, absolutely. And I agree with you on uh, Pineapple Express. It's It doesn't hold up to a rewatch, especially a sober rewatch. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm in full agreement on that. But that was that was like the Apatow movie that was billed as a blockbuster mm-hmm. rather than a nice, quaint surprise from the comedy sector that managed to break the bank. And so, yeah, that's not necessarily a nosedive so much as the first time I would say that those, that his movies didn't reach the expectations that were laid out for them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that makes perfect sense. Now, if if, let's say for some reason you've got a buddy who has never heard of Judd Apatow and this is a bit of a hard one because he is, I think equally prevalent in TV and movies, but kind of what would be your, intro package to Judd Apatow say like okay you got an afternoon to kill here's what you should watch right um it might be an unconventional answer but I would suggest to somebody in that position to start with the earlier movies you know jump jump through Anchorman 40 year old virgin and then go back and watch the shows and then proceed on from there with forgetting Sarah Marshall knocked up because those early comedies, they, they give you such a great perspective of where's the comedy coming from? What's the engine that drove this machine? And then you go back to the shows and that's the heart that eventually seeps its way into the movies with things like knocked up. Uh, And, and, you know, further down the line with, uh, you know, e- even though funny people in this is 40 don't have the same comedic energy, the the emotional uh, the emotional stuff evolves from there. So I, I, I would say watch them exactly the way I did. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would say the one thing about if I were to tell someone like to get into his movies and stuff um his movies are all so long that you have to be kind of selective in what you recommend to them. Um, I think I would always go with the 40 year old virgin as kind of my general, like no matter who you are, you're probably going to enjoy this because it also has a lot of heart to it. Um, It has a great cast. Um, Whereas Knocked Up, I do think 
you know, it's not nearly as alienating as Pineapple Express, but I think when you're past a certain age, you just start thinking, who enjoys these characters? Um, you know, I even even I still am just like, oh god, I hate them all so much. Um, but I would say start with 40-year-old virgin. And if you like that, oh, you'll maybe like knocked up. And then I say like settle into some of his better produced films because it's like these are also really well cast movies, but they don't necessarily have, you know, the weirdly paced, overly long, self-indulgent kind of stuff. Um, I would also say that I think you can enjoy the the TV shows on a completely different level. Um, and it's one of, especially Undeclared, uh, but also Freaks and Geeks, two of the few comedies I wouldn't recommend binging. I would recommend watching maybe two or three at a time at best um, because mm-hmm. they have really good development. Like I said, uh, Freaks and Geeks can get a little heavy, a little sad for everything Lindsay goes through. Um, and just like kill those over a week. And I think you will you will find yourself still really delighted in it. But um, I definitely think his mid-aughts films are the best way to dive into Judd Apatow. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And yeah, that's a good point about the shows. I, on rewatching them recently for this, binging through those is not a good idea. They it do, <laughs> Undeclared doesn't hold up well to binging because it's a lot of repeated information that they're desperately trying to keep a cohesive narrative for, <laughs> as it turned out, no reason. Yes. And then Freaks and Geeks, it's just a little too much emotion episode to episode to to deal with it on a weeknight <laughs> all right so kyle uh it's time it's time to say goodbye to the peak show um so plug your stuff tell us where we can find you and support you and just get to know you a little better well first of all thanks so much for having me on this was so much fun i haven't done a podcast in a while which is why plugging is going to be difficult uh I, I have a show which is part of my website, which is Media Sandwich. Uh, the website is media-sandwich.com. And uh, it's largely our podcast, Media Sandwich, that's been off and on with my best friend uh, for, geez, the better part of a decade. But there aren't that many episodes of it because we're very busy and we tend to repeat ourselves on episodes. It's a very informal hangout show at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. But I also write a lot about movies there. I've been doing a series called Settle This Rehash about sequels. And now that I think about it, Anchorman 2 and Get Him to the Greek would be great candidates for it. Uh, so I might dive into that. And uh, if uh, definitely follow me on Twitter. I'm at Kyle Martinak, which is just Martin with an AK. I don't have a fancy Twitter handle because no one else has that name. <laughs> and no one ever will, I don't think. And then also, please follow me on Letterboxd if you're a Letterboxd person, because that's probably where I'm most active anymore. Uh, And if you feel like it, you can read my book, Cinema Autopsy. That feels weird to say. Uh, It's on Amazon and it's five bucks if if you want to if you got five bucks, there's worse ways to spend it. Yes, I would say um, there are even worse sandwiches to spend it on. Um, so as for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde. You can find me on Twitter at uh, Breganism, which is like veganism with a B-R-E-E. 
Our theme music is an original composition just for the show by the wonderful artist Jack Dump, so you can find them and support them on bandcamp.com slash jackdump. Our show logo is made by my husband, Jared Daly. So now new episodes are due out every two weeks, but we only have one regular episode left before the amazing Peak Show finale party. We'll be bringing back all sorts of guests that you love from season one to play some games and talk about this year in media. We are so excited. In the meantime, you can go through our back catalog, which contains whole episodes on series such as King of the Hill, uh, So You Think You Can Dance, The Office, Parks and Recreation, a whole month on The Simpsons. We've also got film series like The Mighty Ducks. We've got a couple musical episodes on the Arkells. Radiohead and the entire genre of mid-aughts Canadian indie. If you like Broken Social Scene, it's mostly Broken Social Scene. And of course, most recently we did an episode on Seinfeld. So check out our back catalog. You will not be disappointed. Take it easy. And you know how I know you're gay? You have a rainbow sticker that says, I like it when balls are in my face. 